Welcome to Out of the Question, a podcast that looks behind some common questions and uncovers the question behind the question, while providing real solutions from a biblical world and life view. Your co-hosts are Pastor Charles Roberts and Andrea Schwartz, a teacher and mentor. Welcome to another edition of the Out of the Question podcast. I'm Andrea Schwartz, and with me today is my co-host, Pastor Charles Roberts. Hello, Andrea. As our format has been, we try to select a question that we hear, he as a pastor, me as a mentor and a teacher, and try to say, okay, is that really the question that people are trying to answer? In my experience, sometimes the things people think are the issues really are symptomatic of a deeper issue. So the question we're tackling today is, why does it seem so challenging to defend the Christian faith? We think there is a question behind that question that says, what exactly is apologetics, which is the defense of the faith? And is it an offensive position or is it a defensive position? I'm going to turn this over to the pastor man who is going to give us a good definition of apologetics. Apologetics is a term that I I know in the first decade or so of my Christian life, I never heard the term. It was before I found the Reformed faith, but I was in several different churches and never heard it. But it comes from a Greek term, it's apologia or apologia, and of course it sounds like our word apology. And our word comes from this word, but in its technical meaning, it means, as the passage in 1 Peter references it, to be ready to give a defense, or in the better sense, an excuse or a reason for the faith that we have. When we talk about giving an apology, it usually means telling somebody you're sorry for something that you did. In a sense, that could be giving a defense of something that you had done. But in the classic meaning of the term, it means a justification, a setting forth of why you believe what you do, a substantial defense of your worldview or your way of thinking and living. And it has become an elaborate branch of Christian theology. When I was in seminary, you could actually have a concentration in your master's degree in apologetics. So it's become quite a science, if I can use that term. Jesus said, go make disciples of all nations. That was his last communication. He told us that all power had been given to him. So basically, he's telling us, you're going to succeed at what I'm asking you to do, because I wouldn't ask you to do something you couldn't do. How does the subject of apologetics fit into the Great Commission from your point of view? If we are commanded as we are to make the nations Christ's disciples, that means, of course, we're going to be talking to people who do not embrace the kingdom message of the gospel, and they will need to be convinced or told about it. Of course, the ultimate convincing comes from the power of the Holy Spirit, but sort of the paradigm example, the ultimate example, comes to us in the book of Acts, where Paul goes before the Athenians, the the Greek philosophers, and talks to them. And that is sort of the classic example of both an offensive and defensive type of approach to apologetics. He is speaking to people who are well-reasoned and who have their own way of thinking and their own way of looking at the world. And so he sets forth his case. Because the, the text of Acts, we are reading it in a different context in which it is given, we don't necessarily realize that some of the terms that Paul uses in that passage 
he's actually using terms that connect to the Stoic and Epicurean Greek philosophical point of view. So it resonates with these people. They understand that he knows something about philosophy. So in fulfilling the Great Commission, we inevitably are going to be involved in giving an explanation for, if not a formal defense, as we typically would think of it, about why we believe what we believe. And perhaps some of our listeners have attended or viewed or listened to debates between atheists and Christians, Christian theologians or pastors, and those representing other religions. Those are all examples of both and situation. And I think this also goes along with an earlier discussion we had, Andrea, about evangelism. Wouldn't you say there's a connection there? You know, I was sort of asking a question that I already knew how you were going to answer it, but I thought it would be good to flesh out the perspective. But I, I, a couple of things that you said that I think are not commonly accepted today. You pointed out that Paul had to know something as he was dealing with these various groups. Well, it has come to mean to be a good Christian in some circles that you don't really have to think. I just believe in Jesus. I don't have to worry about doctrine. I don't have to worry about theology. I just believe in Jesus. And the problem with that, of course, is that, first of all, it limits Jesus to this small segment of people's lives. Like we're, the mind has nothing to do with it. Understanding or being able to relate to other philosophies don't have anything to do with it. When in actual fact... When Jesus told us we would be his witnesses, he was really saying, as you go out wherever your life takes you, I want you to be able to communicate what belief in me means, both objectively and subjectively. So when people are giving their testimony, too often people think, well, I was doing this, and then I really got really bad, and then I realized how bad it was, and then I accepted Jesus. And they think that's their testimony, when our testimony is an ongoing thing, which talks about how, as we face the realities of life, the Christian faith addresses all those realities and all those circumstances. And so it's foolhardy to think that you better just leave it to the professionals to be good at apologetics because the greater influence is going to come as you rub elbows with all the people you rub elbows with on a day-in and day-out basis. Well, and it brings up the fact, too, that to quote a, uh, one of my favorite movie stars, Clint Eastwood, from one of his films, you've got to be able to adapt and improvise. The encounter that we have with unbelief, the unbeliever, and we see this also in the life of Paul, how he improvised and how he adapted his interaction with people who were not followers of Jesus, depending on who they were. But he was ready in every circumstance. Sometimes he told his own personal story about it, the experience he had with the risen Christ. But then on other occasions, as in Acts chapter 17, where he was in Athens speaking to the philosophers, he gave a, a very different approach. And so this, this should be our own method, and we should be ready, as Scripture tells us, in season and out of season, in every circumstance, to be ready and able to do this. I think it's very important that we do have some semblance of a testimony that we can give about what our lives were like before we became followers of Jesus. On the other hand, if that's all we have, then that may not fit every circumstance. You know, you may in fact run into the village atheist, the well-read, highly academic philosophical type who, especially in an age like ours, where there have been so many books written about atheism, there's even sections in your local chain bookstore where they have a whole section devoted to books promoting atheism, something you did not see 25 years ago. Right. 
But let me say this. If all you have to say in terms of your testimony is what happened 30 years ago or 15 years ago, our testimony should continue to be growing in terms of, so why exactly do you homeschool your children? Doesn't it make sense? You live right across the street from a public school. Or why would you spend the money to send your children to Christian school? See, this is an opportunity for apologetics, giving the reason why we do the things we do. One of the pet phrases that we have in the Reformed faith is full-orbed. And what you just described is an example of that, that our apologetics, our defense of the faith, is a full-orbed one in that it's not simply trying to convince an unbeliever that this particular proof for the existence of God is right or you must accept it because it's more logical. That may have a place to some extent. But every opportunity is one for apologetics or defending of the faith. Just as God's law speaks to every area of life, family, church, state, education, health, all these things, so too is that an opportunity for explaining and defending why we think the way that we do. And the idea that this simply is more than me being able to articulate a philosophical or theological argument or winning a debate or an argument with someone, it is an explanation for an entire way of life. So to that extent, what you do with your children, how you have your marriage, what you read and don't read, your view of politics, art, literature, all these things, are avenues for the apologetic encounter. But to get back to our question, why does it seem so challenging to defend the Christian faith? We haven't really addressed that yet. And I believe the reason it's challenging, because for a lot of people, they have somehow or other separated the gospel from the law. Oh, yeah, they want to tell people that Jesus saves you from your problems. Jesus saves you from your sins. But if you don't let people understand that the reason God became man was because God's revealed law had been disobeyed. And as a result of that disobedience, everybody who followed after Adam inherited something that they can't get rid of themselves. And so if we don't understand the law, then we think that there's all these parts of the Old Testament that aren't very popular, and people are going to just shudder if they believe that the Bible actually says that. And so instead of doing apologetics, which is basically saying, this is the reason why I do this or why this is so, then we start trying to persuade people and sort of market Jesus. And if we can market him in such a way as to not share those parts that are going to be really difficult to explain, maybe we can get him in the door, and then they can read the Bible themselves, and then they'll just have to deal with it. Reminds me of a story I heard some years ago, a story that I'll compress dramatically. It had to do with a big pastor's conference that was held at the end, somewhere toward the end of the year 1999, and it was sort of a, the, the gospel in, in a new millennium type conference. It was held out west there, and a man had been invited to be a guest speaker who was not himself a Christian, but a well-known philosopher and teacher of business ethics and systems analysis. He taught at MIT, and I'm not sure why he was invited, but he was, and it turned out he was speaking to them by way of satellite feed. 
And the man who was hosting the conference said to the, the man who was the guest speaker by means of uh, video, uh, you've probably never addressed a conference of pastors before, so I'm just wondering what you might want to say to a group like this. And he said, you know, you're right. I never have spoken to a group like this uh, before, and I was thinking what I might say. So he said, in preparation, I went to a local bookstore, and I asked what the best-selling books were at that particular time. And he said, I was told that the best-selling books at that time were books on the dot-com economy. That was, again, in the year 1999. And also books on Buddhism. And he said to this audience of pastors, he said, I would like to ask you all, why do you think books on Buddhism are selling more than books on Christianity? And the guy who was host said, you know, I realized there was no way we could answer that question because just of the, the dynamics. So he said, I asked him, well, what would you say? And he said, well, I would say this. Most people, if you ask them, they think of Christianity as a system of belief, whereas they think of Buddhism as a way of life. So he said, if I could get you guys thinking about something, I would ask you, is there some way you can recover the idea of your faith being a way of life and not just a system of belief? The man who was host said you could have heard a pin drop, and everyone there agreed that the five days of the conference, that was the last day, that was worth the whole conference. And the point there is that, yes, Christianity is a system of belief. It is more than that. But again, we have to be ready to speak to this issue as something more than just an academic exercise. Systems of belief are a dime a dozen. They all, of course, the only one that is inherently consistent and meaningful is the biblical worldview. Right. Think of it this way. A lot of people would take that and say, oh, a way of life. Okay, I go to church. Yeah, that's my way of life. Yeah, we go to church. That's it. And for a lot of people, the only way they can share their faith is saying, hey, would you like to come to church with me? A lot of times, especially as you encounter people, whether it's at work or through recreational activities or even on public transportation, the fact remains that most people aren't going to say, oh, yes, I'll come to church with you. And I think people have a reticence to really start talking about their faith because it's not grounded in the certainty that the book of Romans tells us in the first chapter that everybody is without excuse. They all know God, but they suppress the truth in unrighteousness. So God has made every person with an awareness of right and wrong. Now, granted, the average person who has never encountered the Bible won't know about the sacrificial system and won't know about Jesus Christ being the second person of the Trinity who became man. But morally and ethically, they know the truth and they suppress the truth in unrighteousness. And I don't think enough professing believers really have that conviction. And I can tell you that when I encounter people, that's my assumption because that's what the Bible tells me to assume about them. If this person is saying, I don't believe in God, I'm an agnostic, I'm an atheist, I don't say, hello, I'd like to tell you that you are suppressing the truth and unrighteousness. But if I'm not certain about that, then I'm going to approach them very differently, like, well, maybe God just didn't reveal himself well enough to that person the way he revealed himself to me, and now we're pointing the finger at God. In saying that we, we want to recover Christianity as a way of life, that implies law. If you're talking about a way of living, it inevitably implies the concept of law. The question is, whose law? And that goes to the heart of the matter you just brought up. People are going to be accountable to some law, and they know deep within themselves that they are accountable to God. 
but they are consistently and constantly trying to run away from that. It certainly may well be, from my perspective, Andrea, that God at that point in the encounter or discussion has not revealed himself. But the point is, is that we don't know God's secret will in terms of how he's going to be operating with any particular individual. What we do know is, like you quoted at the beginning, the Great Commission, we are to go and extend the call to all people. What the Lord chooses to do with that call is up to him. Our part is to be faithful in uh, setting forth the message so that all can hear it. But let me just say this, Charles. I don't disagree that God, first of all, does reveal things when he chooses to. I'm talking about the believer having the certainty that this other person knows the truth and is or has or both suppressing the truth in unrighteousness. What it means is he needs to hear it, not I've got to figure out another way to share because if I share that he's a sinner and he needs the redemption of Jesus Christ, that could offend him. Well, the point is, he already knows he is a sinner. He may not admit it to you, but he knows. Well, I think part of the fallen condition that Paul is describing there, and this is part of the challenge about why this is so difficult and challenging, as we said at the beginning, is that, yes, the unbeliever knows, but as Paul said, and as you quoted, that knowledge is being suppressed. So he may not be consciously aware, and when you're talking to him or her, they're thinking, I know I'm a sinner, but I'm not about to let on to it. Chances are that they're not thinking that way at all, because this suppression of that truth is so subtle and so powerful. The only thing that can change it is God's Holy Spirit. But to say again what you just said, our job is to realize that, to know that, and recognize that every person we meet who is not already a follower of Jesus, has a target on them, and we are to zero in on that and make sure that they hear the call of the gospel. Exactly. And this is not a license to say, I can be cruel, I can be harsh. What we really need to do is learn how to take our conversations with people and turn them into opportunities to actually exercise our responsibility in the Great Commission. And one of the ways you do that, believe it or not, is not by talking, it's but by listening. Ask people to tell you about themselves. It won't take very long because before they're sharing something that if you know what you're looking at, you'll say, oh, well, this is obviously the effect of sin in their life, either their own sin or people sinning against them. And so now you have the ground to put the seeds in because you've helped dig it up by caring enough about the other person to actually ask questions and then listen when they talk. I suppose that at the end of our discussion, as we usually do, we'll be recommending some resources. But before we get to that, long before we get to that, I would like to suggest to our listeners that you can find no better resource than the Gospels and the, the, the Epistles of Paul. I mean, Jesus himself is our prime example of how he went about talking to people and the way he interacted with them. If we just take the time to study that, we can see that, I mean, we would expect since he's the divine incarnate son of God, he would be a genius in some sense, obviously. But there is a real genius, if I can use that term, as to how he interacted with people and how he was able to zero in on these very things you're talking about. I mean, his encounter say, with the man who said, well, I've kept all these commandments since my youth, 
versus the, the Samaritan woman at the well versus the woman taken in adultery versus the, the paralyzed man, the leper. All of these are very different cases, and he interacted with each of them very in, in very unique ways. And I think this is something that we need to be prepared to do. Now, part of the problem, one reason, again, it's so challenging is that perhaps the average Christian is not prepared to do that. And the reason for it is the churches aren't doing their job at uh, getting them prepared. My husband and I used to have this standing joke. I'd go to a company Christmas party or picnic or something like that. I would sit and talk to people who he had worked with for years. And in the end of about a five or ten minute conversation, I would know something about this person that my husband never knew. And he'd say, how do you do that? How, how do you get people to talk to you? I said, well, because I ask a question and then I listen. And when somebody gives me an answer, I have some knowledge about what that person's talking about. And if I don't, I say, well, explain that. I've never really encountered that. Oh, really? What does that mean? And people like to share what they know. And until you actually have interaction with people, you're not even past the superficial. So you won't know, for example, whether or not somebody has illness in their family or did someone just die or did they lose a pet or something like that. These are all the things that shape people. And so I told my husband, I said, when I'm going to meet people, I actually pray that God opens the door. And he thought that was such a unique way of looking at it. You actually pray for encounters? I go, yeah, because I want them to happen. I'm not sure everybody wants them to happen because they're either afraid of, well, I might not know the answer, or I might not really care to get to know this person all that well anyway. So let's talk a little bit about how you get prepared to actually interact with people. Well, in in getting to that, let me say this. I'm reminded of a line from a famous poem by William Butler Yeats where he says, The best lack all conviction, while the worst are full of passionate intensity. Very often, those who are members of false religions, cults, other religions are much more aggressive and proactive at this sort of thing than we who have the truth. You don't have to look very far to find examples of that. And to our shame, perhaps we can learn something from them. How do you get prepared to get up every day and realize, and I'm going to co-opt a phrase here from another Christian tradition, and I'm not going to mean exactly the same thing they meant by it, but I like it. It's called walking in the realm of the miraculous. You were talking about that in a general sense. You don't realize, you personally or me or anyone else listening to us, The Lord has given you unique experiences that only you have had that he can use for various encounters that you might have with some. You mentioned a pet dying. Most people have had that experience, but there may be other unique experiences that have happened to you that if you just look carefully or open your eyes and your ears, the Lord will bring these people into your path. And this is his divine directive. Our calling is to be ready and prepared. So that is one of the most important things is to get up every day and recognize Part of what I'm going to be doing today and every day is looking for those opportunities and being aware that the Lord may well bring somebody into my path. But it's like you said, you've got to be willing to listen and ask questions. And, of course, the presupposition that you have there, and it is absolutely accurate, most people, Andrea, are more than willing to talk about themselves. (laughs) That's true. They're experts at talking about themselves. So you said something about presuppositions. There are different ways to utilize apologetics. 
There is the presuppositional approach, which I sort of hinted at in terms of assuming that everybody knows the truth. And then there are other ways, one of which is evidentialism, that we are going to use evidence to prove to people of the existence of God. It may have some place in terms of preliminary discussion, but again, it has to be tailored to the situation. I don't think the evidentialist approach is the scriptural way because it assumes that people have sort of a a neutral area within their minds and their intellects. And if I can convince you that my logical formulation is true and then I can reject yours, then you know you, you have a rational mind, therefore you, you can believe and accept if I can just help you see that one plus one equals two. Well, that contradicts what Paul said in Romans 1. If you're suppressing the truth, that includes even your way of thinking. There may be a place for evidences, but again, you might run into somebody, say if you're a college student, somebody's all excited about debating Christians because they've embraced atheism or some other religion where that might, on the surface, come into play. But I recall some years ago when I was in seminary in Philadelphia, one of the local area Presbyterian churches were known to be very aggressive, and I mean in a positive sense, for their evangelistic outreach. And they had a little pamphlet that the pastor of this church developed, and the name of the pamphlet was, Have You Ever Wanted a New Life? And they used that to great success, and they were well-trained in apologetics in these churches. But you see, that question is going to resonate with far more people than, have you ever considered that the ontological argument for the existence of God is true? <laughs> you know, there may be somebody that you run into in the local Starbucks who would be open to that. But most people, at some point, maybe within a week or a certain day of the week, they're going to be thinking, yeah, I wish my life was a lot better, a lot different. So I think that is a much more consistently biblical approach is asking a question like that with the understanding that people's minds and hearts are darkened and it is going to be the recognition that they're not going to be convinced by intellectual arguments. Right, because our problem isn't an intellectual one. Our problem is a moral ethical one. And until we embrace the fact that man's chief sin is failing to worship God as his creator, everything else ends up being symptomatic of that basic sin. But let me go back to the more formal issue of Let's say you are dealing with somebody who is more academic or intellectual. The key thing is, I think, in terms of a formal apologetic encounter is to press the issue that the non-believer has no justification for knowledge. There, the formal term epistemology, it is groundless. I was listening to a podcast the other day, and they were talking about the secular scientific, humanistic scientific approach. There was some film or video you know, discussing physics. And... The starting point of this video about the formation of the universe, it started off with atoms or molecules came together. <laughs> that was it. That's how they started. And based on that, they then elaborated this vast evolutionary view of life and matter and the physical universe. And yet there was absolutely no justification. They just started with that premise. Atoms or molecules came together. Well, they were being presuppositional. Absolutely, yes. Right. But, but the foundation of their presupposition had no justification for it. That is, is the point that we have to press, that you've got to start somewhere to justify your knowledge and your belief about everything. And there is only one place to consistently start that gives a justification, and that is the Word of God. Since we know ahead of time the topics that we're going to cover, 
I'm sure you do the same thing. I spend the week kind of thinking about it and whatnot. So yesterday I was at the athletic club that I go to and there was this gentleman who was the kind of person who, I don't know why he goes to the athletic club because he doesn't exactly work out. He just goes around talking to people and he had this t-shirt. <laughs> I think I know that guy. <laughs> you know that guy? Yeah. The t-shirt said philosophy deals with a lot of unanswered questions. Religion gives you a bunch of unquestioned answers. <laughs> and in my mind, I'm sitting there working out on my elliptical rider, and I'm thinking, what would I say to this guy? Well, I got a chance to watch him operate and going around, and he's a know-it-all. And I realized that this is something that a lot of people get trapped into. You don't have to deal with the know-it-all. You don't have to cast pearl before swine. And that sounds like, wow. Isn't she being harsh? She just identified that guy as swine. Well, he's walking around basically poo-pooing religion in general. And so it's meant to put people on the defensive. Apologetics isn't find somebody who wants to make you feel uncomfortable, have him pepper you with all sorts of questions, and now you have to deal with him. No, you get to choose the encounters you're going to have. And it's always better to deal with somebody who legitimately wants to know as opposed to someone who just wants to make you feel foolish because you have belief in Jesus Christ. And I think it's important to differentiate the kinds of people. It's not that apologetics is dealing with the people who think they're so smart or maybe are so smart and are going to put you in a corner and make you feel small. That's the person, especially after experience, knowing that they don't, they're not going to change their minds even if you succeeded in changing their minds. And, or if they do, they're not going to tell you. There are plenty of people who really do want answers. There are plenty of people who really do have issues that they're, quite frankly, not going to find solutions to apart from Jesus Christ. They may think that they have those solutions, but the challenge is, is that most people at some level will be aware that the solutions that they think they have simply don't fit and don't work. There will be something within their lives, within whatever area it is that they are finding the so-called, quote, solution, where, whether it be a marital problem, a family problem, problem at work, it's just not getting the job done, so to speak. And in that case, they may be open, by God's grace, to hearing what the solutions really and truly are. But again, the point is you have to be ready, you have to be recognizing that you may have these encounters and therefore be ready to improvise and adapt depending on the circumstance. I, uh, I'm reminded of a story that a well-known, uh, no longer with us, unfortunately, motivational speaker and writer told some years ago when he was on a subway in New York City, I think it was, and some guy got on with his kids, and the kids were just running wild up and down the subway car. This guy was trying to concentrate on something, and the kids were just getting really annoying. And finally, the guy had had enough, and he kind of said something to the kid's dad. You know, can't you keep these kids quiet a little bit? And the guy just said, you know, man, I am really, really sorry. You know, we just came from the hospital. Their mother died. And they don't really know what to do with themselves. Well, you can imagine how that guy felt. But, you see, that was an encounter that he could have used. I don't mean this in a bad way, but he was dealing with somebody in a very, very tragic situation. And, listen, if people want examples of how to formally, quote-unquote, defend the faith, get a copy. You can find it online of Greg Bonson's debate with Gordon Stein, the atheist. It is a powerful example of one version of presuppositional apologetics having a positive and successful encounter with an atheist in a formal debate setting. But you know something, Andrea? I don't have any hard and fast statistics, 
But I'm guessing there haven't been that many people who've listened to that and immediately gone off and said, I believe now. And that's the point that I think we have to get away from. Apologetics isn't slaying your opponent in a debate and getting the judges to hold up the card that says you won. <laughs> That's right. Because winning, when we talk about winning people to Christ, first of all, it's the Holy Spirit who actually wins them. But we are the vehicle. We are the ones who have the privileged opportunities to be part of that equation in terms of how someone came to faith. Much more important than beating him and making him feel, aha, I've just taken away all his justification, is demonstrating the fact that you really and truly care for him to know something that he will not know any other way apart from being visited by God's Holy Spirit. And the opportunity that the Lord may use, it may come at the end of a discussion like that. There's something else we have to remember. Some people sow the seeds. Other people water the seeds, and other people reap. And I know that there are many people who sowed in me who maybe to this day still wonder whatever happened to that person. She was so out there. She was so lost. Well, it'd be nice to be able to run into those people again and say, by the way, God found me. So instead of saying, well, this is a worthless encounter because this person isn't going to change his mind, just realize you may be in the sewing process with that person. And that's why I have come to not attempt to persuade anybody to become a Christian or to persuade them that Christianity is better than something else. Because when it comes right down to it, what we're telling them is you're not going to be able to care enough about your eternal salvation unless God helps you care. Yeah, and that kind of gets back to that story I told earlier about the guy who was making this contrast between system of belief versus way of life. If all we're attempting to do is convince people of the superiority of a particular system of belief, that's, that's not going to get the job done because somebody may be better at articulating that than us about a different religion, even though it may be a false one. And most people aren't walking around formally thinking, I wish I could find the best system of belief. As, I, as the examples that I've given and that you have talked about, most people are walking around thinking, what am I going to do with the fact that my spouse passed away? What am I going to do about the fact that my child is in this situation, that my wife, my husband lost their job? In other words, what is it that I can find that can explain what's going on right now in my life? These are the things that really resonate with people, and these are the things that Jesus was the master at dealing with in his own ministry. And that is an apologetic encounter. And as you have well said, we, we've got to divest ourselves of this idea of the formal debate. And, and this goes back to another thing that we talked about earlier about diaconal ministry. I said it there, and I'll say it again. The Roman Empire was one piecemeal, little by little, to the Christian faith, not by Paul's debate at Athens, but by the mercy ministry of Christians, and them using that ministry as a means of explaining and defending the faith that they had. Most people will not think of the verse, let your light shine before men so that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. But that is very much in line with what the diaconate is supposed to be. In other words, we're supposed to be about good works. Good works don't save us, but if we're saved, we are supposed to be about not thwarting the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit would be spurring us on to good works. So here's the temptation. 
somebody tells you that is so great. You just donated all this money to help flood victims or you didn't have to go and spend time visiting that shut in. And you did. I think that's just amazing. Instead of going, Hey, yeah, I know I'm pretty cool. No, we're supposed to say, because God has redeemed me, I'm going to go and share the good news. Guess what we just did? We just took the light off us and we shone it back where it came from so they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. If you don't complete the equation, if they're not glorifying your Father in heaven, chances are it's because you didn't tell them where this all came from. We have to have the equivalent in our churches and in our families of what came to be known in the professional game of soccer as total soccer. I'm a big soccer fan. I'll use this illustration if it's okay. We allow 19... one sports analogy <laughs> a podcast. Well, so- soccer is more than a sport. It's a way of life. <laughs> okay, there you go. All right. Um, back in the 70s, there was a famous coach who co- coached one of the European teams And he was famous for introducing what came to be known as total football, total soccer, whereas the older model was that you had two guys up front who would push forward to score the goals. These were the strikers, and the halfbacks, you know, their job was to pass the ball up to the strikers, and the fullbacks stayed back to defend the goal along with the goalkeeper. And so you've got 11 guys on the team, and basically two of them are the guys who go forward to try to score the goals. Well, this particular coach said, wait a minute, why can't I have – 11 guys total involved with trying to score a goal, maybe except for the goalkeeper. They all ought to be involved in attacking the other, other team's goal. And so all of a sudden, you know, he, he put this model forward and he took several teams to European championships because uh, for, for some of the other co- uh, clubs caught on that, hey, wait a minute, I can't just assume that that guy way back there playing fullback is not going to come forward and try to score a goal while the guy who's normally doing it, he's sort of off to the side. Now they all do it. But in our churches, we, we need to be thinking the same way. It's not just the elder or the deacon, or it's not just the elder or the pastor. It's also the deacon. It's also the women's Bible study group. It's everybody who can have this encounter with people, and we should be prepared. That may be sharing your own personal experience with the Lord or uh, a particular difficulty that you went through that being a Christian solved that problem or helped you deal with it. But it also may mean leaving behind a book or a booklet or, or a CD. All of this is a, is a form of seed planting that may germinate decades, months, weeks later. And actually, the model I like better, not that I'm taking pastors or deacons or elders and saying they're off the hook, but they're there to help equip the saints to go out and do the work of the kingdom. Instead of looking at church as a place where everybody, we should try to get everybody to go to church, I like to look at a beneficial church experience, more like a gas fill-up station. I've been out doing what I'm supposed to be doing in obedience to serving the kingdom, and I need to get my tank filled up. I need to be encouraged. I need to be made aware of maybe there are things I'm doing in my life that I need to change because I'm hindering my work for the kingdom. And so the work of charity is not a church committee somewhere under the banner of they meet every third and sixth Tuesday of the year or something. When it comes right down to it, everybody's got the job to go make disciples, to disciple the nations. And if you don't feel compelled to do so or equipped to do so, that's where the pastor, that's where the sermon, that's where the study should be all about, how to make you effective in your kingdom service. 
And it reminds me of a book that Brian Abshire wrote some years ago called The Church as God's Armory. Until the churches see themselves as that very thing, place where God's armory is located and the resources are sent forth to be involved in the very things we're talking about, we're going to lag behind uh, other faith traditions and false religions and cults who are doing a lot better job for for the time being than we are. Or we could say people in other countries, Christians in third world countries, so-called, who are far more motivated perhaps than comfortable Western Christians have become. And let's not get lost into thinking that the major competitive religious force against the work of the Christian faith and the Christian church is the comfortable, materialistic, humanistic secularism that's so much a part of everything, whether it's the public school system, whether it's the major media outlets, whether it's how we think about in terms of who's in charge and who's responsible until we embrace the responsibility that God has given us as individuals, as families, as churches in communities to go and make a difference where we are, then I think we're going to automatically default to the humanistic society that we're at. And until people understand how differently that is grounded than a Christian world and life view, they may not even see the conflict. So in getting back to our original project, I think we have talked about why this can be so challenging on the surface, lack of preparation, lack of awareness. But I think we're seeing in this discussion that apologetics is something that is both and. It is both offensive and defensive, depending on the context. Sometimes a good offense is a good defense and vice versa. So I would stress again, the preparedness that we have, the sensitivity to God's leading in terms of recognizing that, hey, this is a prime opportunity that has opened up here before me to speak to someone about the kingdom of God and the importance of following Jesus. That should motivate us and give us some encouragement to recognize and stop thinking, oh, this is something too difficult, or I've got to take this 10-week course. There's nothing wrong with being prepared and studying and, and that sort of thing. But we're not all called to be Paul at Athens. You know, some of us are called to be just the simple person down the street who lends a sympathetic ear, but at the same time is recognizing what really is at the heart of our neighbor's problem. And never confusing the fact that you don't bring about the results anyway. So you can do all that we've talked about, and then you have one additional thing that no other religion has, and that is you can petition the creator of all things and say, please, Touch the heart of the person that I'm working with. I would love to see that person move from condemnation to grace. And that's the thing that makes, from my point of view, Christianity so radically different. We have an involved living God who cares more for us than we could even imagine caring for ourselves. Yes, absolutely. And this is the key thing that should motivate us. We're not looking to put notches on our belt. And unfortunately, the training for apologetics and evangelism that goes right along with it can be conceived of as something that you have to be, quote, a success at in terms of counting cards or counting heads. Yes, I see that hand. Yes, I see that hand. You can put them down now, come forward and, you know, come to Jesus type of thing. Like you also said earlier, you may not ever see the results this side of heaven of what you have done to plant the seeds for someone who will eventually, by God's grace, come to believe and and follow Jesus. And so I think that's something that, with the blessings that we have in understanding Holy Scripture 
in the system that we have come to know as Calvinism or the Reformed faith, we recognize that God is sovereign. He is the one who will use this encounter to his glory, and we can rest assured that we have done what he's called us to do if we are faithful in speaking those words to people in the circumstances in which they are and leave the rest up to him. That is our ultimate success. You mentioned earlier that you were going to have some recommendations, and we typically do. So what are your recommendations for some good orientations to the presuppositional apologetics? Well, I made reference earlier to Ryan Abshire's booklet called The Church is God's Armory. Unfortunately, I don't think that's still available. I think you can get them from Brian, but I'm not sure about that. I, I find You can find used copies online. That is more, I guess, for pastors and church leaders and church members about what the church really is in terms of going out and being involved in this great commission, and that includes evangelism and apologetics. I want to recommend also a book by Ronald Nash, who was a philosopher. He taught at Syracuse University and Reformed Theological Seminary called Worldviews in Conflict, Choosing Christianity in a World of Ideas. It is a short little book published by Zondervan, and it is a great basic introduction to this whole issue. It's not overly technical, but it covers a lot of territory in just the space of about, let's see, 175 pages. Then Cornelius Van Til's little pamphlet, Paul at Athens, which is readily available. You can find copies online. Is his description of Paul's encounter at Athens, if you want something specifically dealing with that. And then finally, I would recommend also R.J. Rushdoony's book, The Mythology of Science. Very often, if you're going to be involved in a what we've been calling a more academic or intellectual discussion, people are going to default to the position of materialistic or scientific humanism. In this book, it will open your eyes to a wealth of information about what Dr. Rastuni properly called the mythology, not in the sense of falsehood, but that science is based on a particular worldview. I can't speak highly enough for this book. It's available from the Chalcedon store, The Mythology of Science. How about you, Andrea? Well, there is an audio album that's available both in CD and MP3 where Dr. Rushduni was giving lectures, I believe it was at a seminary, but on the subject of apologetics. It's not like, well, I have to have been in seminary to understand it. It's very down-to-earth, and he gets a lot of questions at the end of each lecture, and it's very helpful in identifying what the subject covers and what it doesn't cover and the ways in which to do it. And remember, I said he was talking to seminary students, and so he was trying to help them see what their role was as pastors in terms of apologetics. But I listened to it, I would say, once every couple of years, and it renews my perspective on what I'm supposed to do. So that also is available at calcedon.edu. Excellent. Well, we trust that our listeners have gained something from this discussion and that they will recognize these opportunities as maybe both a challenge and also as opportunities to both actively, proactively defend the Christian faith and the belief that they have within them. We invite everyone to come back next time for our next podcast. And if in the meantime, you either have questions or comments about this topic or there's a topic you would like us to cover, shoot off an email to outofthequestionpodcast at gmail.com, and we will certainly entertain that. Until next time, Charles. Thank you, Andrea. Thanks for listening to Out of the Question. For more information on this and other topics, visit www.kingdomdrivenfamily.com.